Thanks, guys. Hello, ladies. I'm Deb Haygood, part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and I am so happy that you are here today. It's so great to see your beautiful, smiling faces. Um, thank you so much for coming and being here, and I am thrilled to be here with you today as well, and I want to say hello to West Campus. Uh, thank you for joining us um, in this study of Genesis. Genesis, I appreciate the testimonies that I've heard. Uh, what do you think about these chapters in Genesis? Great stories. Think so, ladies? Have you enjoyed this? Great stories in Genesis, and they just keep coming. You know, we have called this study Friends of God, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, because they are the main characters in these first, I mean, in these chapters 12 through 50 of Genesis. Um, so far, we've mainly been looking at Abraham. Today, we're going to look a little bit at Isaac. But Abraham is the one that God called out from Ur of the Chaldees and said, go to the land, I will show you. And that land was Canaan. And there, God made the covenant promises with Abraham. It was there that he promised him land and seed or descendants and blessing. And we have studied Abraham's faith, we've seen his wavering faith, and we've seen his faith grow stronger and deeper until last week um, we saw Abraham's finest hour. It was Abraham's shining moment when um, his, he, he trusts God, we see his faith tested, uh, and God has asked him to give up Isaac, but God, but Abraham knows God, and he believes God, and he walks in obedience with God, and Abraham's faith is triumphant. We see that deep, profound faith of Abraham that he has been known for throughout the ages. And we also see that Abraham is a great example of the faithful friend of God. Faithful friend of God. And have you noticed how much we've been learning about God? This is really God's story. It's all about God. God is the one that is faithful. God's faithfulness never wavers. We've also seen that um, he keeps, he's faithful to keep his promises to Abraham, even when Abraham makes those foolish mistakes. We've also seen God's mercy and God's grace, and I've seen a lot of God's patience in these verses. God has been with Abraham. He is sovereign. He's working out his ultimate plan through Abraham, keeping his covenant promises, which we first studied back in Genesis 12, those verses 2 and 3. And we've read this before, but um, these are the key verses in Genesis, so I have them on your verse sheet. I thought we would read them one more time this morning. God said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. There's the land promise. And I will bless you and make your name great. And there's the descendants promise. And so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that is a reference to the coming Savior, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> you know, we've talked a lot about um, promises these covenant promises. So I thought I would um, give you a definition of promise. A promise is a declaration assuring that one will or will not do something. It's a vow. It's a vow. A promise gives us a basis for expecting. Now, there is no one that we see that more clearly in than children. Have you ever promised something to a child? Yeah. 
Some of you are sh shaking your, your heads, yes. And you know that they're going to um, hold you to it. They're gonna remember that promise. They're expecting that promise to be fulfilled. And if you break that promise, there is nothing more um, visual than a child that's had a promise broken. But I was thinking about that. We really, as adults, we don't like broken promises either. A broken promise erodes our trust in the person making that promise. And we see that as people that make promises and hear promises made to us. If someone doesn't keep their word, if they don't do what they say, pretty soon we begin to think of them as untrustworthy. They're not very faithful. And the opposite is true too. If somebody always does what they say they're gonna do, they keep their promises, we begin to look at them and think of them as someone that's very faithful. And that is what's happened with Abraham. He has seen God keep his covenant promises over and over again until Abraham's faith is very deep. He trusts God completely that these promises that have been made to him are going to be kept by God. And they're not just promises, we call them covenant promises. And a covenant is a binding agreement between two people. These covenant promises were between God and Abraham, and then Abraham's descendants. You know, we've said that the Bible from Genesis on is really God's story of keeping and working out his covenant promises to Abraham and to Abraham's son and his son and those descendants, which will um, end up with Jesus Christ, our Savior, and that ultimately affects us. And so we, all of us, are part of God's story. Today we're gonna to look at the continuation of these covenant promises in chapter 23 and chapter 24. Chapter 23 is really the promise about land, and chapter 24 is really all about the promise of descendants. And it's also a great love story. It's a great time uh, around Valentine's Day to be talking about <clears throat> chapter 24. But first we've gotta finish up where we left off last week, the end of chapter 22. Um, you might remember after um, God confirmed once again his covenant promises to Abraham, Abraham and Isaac go down from Mount Moriah and they go back home to Beersheba. And then Genesis 22 ends with a genealogy. Now, you never ever wanna skip a genealogy because they are so important. So I'm looking at your faces out there and some of you are like, well, what? As my grandson Dylan would say, what, why? Why are they so important? Well, genealogies tell us about God's story. They tell us about him and his story and how it's working out. And so you always wanna look carefully at genealogies. Read them and see if there isn't something special going on there and usually it's right in the middle. So let's go on and read uh, chapter 22 starting in verse 20 and let's finish up that chapter. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz's brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chezed, Hazo, Pildesh. You wouldn't want to read this if you were trying to think of a name, especially Uz and Buzz. And, okay. And then we come to Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight, Milcah, bore to Nahor, and Abraham's brother. So that's important. Nahor is Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gatham, Talash, and Mac. So a few more. So we learn some important things here in this family tree. This is Nahor's um, list of descendants, and Nahor is Abraham's 
brother. And do you see what's kind of important right there in the middle? It talks about Bethuel, the son of Nahor. His daughter is Rebekah. And that's a foreshadowing of what we're going to um, read about and learn in chapter 24. Also, this genealogy reminds us um, that Abraham comes from Mesopotamia. He first learned, lived in southern Mesopotamia in Ur, then he travels to Haran, and this now is where his relatives are living. Uh, this is northwest Mesopotamia. This is where Abraham was from. Canaan is not Abraham's home. This was not where he was from. So this genealogy is gonna set up our stories in chapters 23 and 24. So keeping that in mind, let's look at Genesis 23, verse one. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, excuse me, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Someone told me that this is the first place in scripture that we see a man cry. Abraham is weeping for Sarah. You know, Sarah dies at age 127. She's probably still very beautiful. Uh, Sarah is the only woman in scripture whose age is recorded when she dies. And she's the only woman uh, in scripture who has her name changed by God. These two things indicate that she is a very important person. Now, we know she is important. Um, she is the wife of Abraham. She is the mother of Isaac. Uh, she uh, was given this promise to have Isaac at a very um, old age. Uh, God had said to Abraham that Sarah would have Isaac, and Isaac would be the one that he would continue his covenant promises with. So, Sarah has the mother of Isaac. She has the son of promise. We also know that Sarah had traveled with Abraham from Ur to Haran. That's uh, about 650 miles. Then she travels another 450 miles down from Haran into Canaan. And then we know there were stories that she went on into Egypt with Abraham and back again. So she has traveled many miles with um, this man. She also has heard the Lord promise her a son in her old age, and she rejoiced over Isaac. Now, she's also made some big mistakes. She was impatient. She tried to take matters into her own hands um, by giving Hagar to Abraham. But she has seen firsthand God keep his promises, and she has been by Abraham's side through all of this. And Abraham grieves for his wife. He mourns for Sarah. He loves Sarah dearly. And when she dies, he is heartbroken. And it says, he weeps for her. He weeps for her. Let's go on and see what he does in verse three. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, now the Hittites are the people living in the land of Canaan, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now that phrase there, bury my dead out of my sight, means, uh, can be translated into bury his dead properly or decently. He wants to give Sarah a decent, proper burial. Um, 
And so he asked them for land. So let me tell you um, something about this. God has promised this land to Abraham and his descendants. And even though he's promised this, Abraham does not own even one square foot of Canaan at this time. And he calls himself a sojourner and a foreigner. Some of your translations might say stranger or alien. And these were terms that were used back then to um, reference someone that was living in the land, but they were not from the land. They might even have footing in the community, but their rights were restricted. The alien, the foreigner, could not be granted land of his own. He could not buy and own land there. So that brings up two two, uh, interesting things. One, is Abraham gonna get some land to bury uh, Sarah? And then secondly, the fact that Abraham wants to bury Sarah in this land tells us that he intends to stay in Canaan for the rest of his life. Canaan is his home. This is what he intends. You know, most of us, when someone dies, we wanna bury our loved ones back at home, close to us. If, If someone's on a trip or if they have moved away for a while, we wanna bring them back home to bury them. And that's kind of my story. My father um, was young, he was 47 when he died suddenly of a heart attack. I was just a young 25 year old, hadn't been married but a couple of years. My parents had lived in Miami, Florida for about 15 years, but our relatives were in other states. My dad's um, parents were in Arkansas with lots of other relatives and my parents had bought some land there and gonna build a log cabin there. And um, the summer that they did that, he had said to my mom, Hey, this is beautiful land. Arkansas's beautiful. Just bury me in Arkansas. Little did he know that two months later, he would die and need a place to be buried. And my mom at the time, shocked and grief-stricken, as we all were, thought, I'm gonna take him back to Arkansas and bury him. My grandparents were thrilled. Um, He was buried in this little church cemetery plot where my grandmother's parents were buried and her parents and there were siblings. There's grave sites all around of family there in Arkansas. But Abraham is not taking Sarah back to Haran where he had lived and where his relatives lived. No, he wants to bury Sarah in Canaan, the land of promise. So let's see what happens. Verse five, the Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So what's going on here? Now, this is a little confusing to read. Um, The Hittites look very polite and accommodating when they say, hey, bury Sarah in the choices of our tombs. And what they're really saying is, you can bury her here, but you are not gonna own this land. We're not gonna sell this land to you. You can bury her here, but that's it. But Abraham doesn't wanna settle for this. He wants to own this burial ground where he puts Sarah. So verses 10 through 16 is this bargaining that goes on between Ephraim the Hittite and Abraham. Um, And these are kind of polite things that they would say, probably they still do in the Middle East, these kind of bargaining things back and forth until finally Ephraim says, okay, 
you can buy the land. He agrees to sell it to Abraham for 400 shekels. Now, this is not... Um, a bargain, ladies. I looked this up and it said this property would usually sell for 40 shekels of silver. Abraham agrees to pay 400 shekels of silver, 10 times the amount. And it says that that would be about 100 pounds of silver in this day and time. Can you imagine? 100 pounds of silver, pretty expensive. But Abraham wants to own this land. And so then in verses uh, 17 and 18, we see how it's a legal transaction that takes place and how um, it's described with the fields, uh, uh, the trees on this field and then this cave, where, which would become um, a burial place. So Abraham owns this field and the cave in it. After living in Canaan for more than 60 years, Abraham owns um, this small piece of Canaan. Let's read verses 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So you see, it's very well described. It's very legal. Um, everybody's witnessing this legal transaction. And Abraham now owns this small piece of land. And it would be the only land that he would own in his lifetime. I read this quote. Um, that says, Abraham mingled the dust of his love with that of the land of promise as a sign of his expectation that God would fulfill the promise to his descendants. Now, you remember that um, promise of descendants. It's been several places, but on your verse sheet, I put uh, Genesis 13, 15, where we read, God talking to Abraham, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Abraham believes that promise. Abraham has an expectation. He believes that God will fulfill this promise, and he wants to own this small piece of land in Canaan. Now, it will be over 400 years before Abraham's descendants um, leave the slavery of Egypt with Moses and go through the wilderness to the banks of the Jordan River. And there they would cross over, and under the leadership of Joshua, and with the power of God, they would take over and inhabit the promised land. It would be theirs. This purchase of land was Abraham's testimony to his children and their children and their children that um, God will be faithful to his promises. God is going to be faithful to his promises of land. This land signifies Abraham's faith in God's promises and Abraham's intention to stay in Canaan. It's certain this is his home. Here he will bury Sarah. And we're gonna see that Abraham goes on to be buried in this tomb and their son Isaac is buried there with his wife Rebecca and their son Jacob and Jacob's wife Leah are all buried in this tomb, several generations and can you picture Moses standing on the banks of the Jordan River telling and encouraging the Israelites as they are about to march into Canaan? And he would tell them this story in chapter 23 of Genesis. And they would be encouraged to know that this is God's land of promise for them, the descendants of Abraham. Ladies, our belief in God affects um, our walk with him. Not only our belief in God, but in his promises. 
It affects our walk with him. When we believe God, when we trust him, then we obey him and we're walking alongside him. We make different choices when we believe God and his promises. Abraham is acting on God's promise of land. Think about the promises that you know. Um, look through scriptures and write them down. Last week, um, Misty said, put, write them some, some of your great promises in the back of your Bible so that you can think about them. But be aware of God's promises. Our belief in God and his promises affect our walk with him. So let's go on to chapter 24. This is the um, longest chapter in Genesis, but it is also the most pleasant. And it's the most pleasant for two reasons. One, everyone in this story do the right thing. They all obey God. Did you see that? Everyone obeys God and they follow God. There are four main characters, Abraham, his servant Eleazar, Rebecca, and Isaac. And they all follow God. And do you see how pleasant it is when that happens? I love that, to see this glimpse of what it's like when we obey and follow God. You're not gonna see that in another chapter in Genesis. So just uh, saying. But um, this one is really, really pleasant. And, and it's a great uh, story around Valentine's Day because the second reason it's pleasant, it's a story of love and romance. And here we see God as the matchmaker. God is gonna be the matchmaker. Now, whenever I say that word matchmaker, what comes to your mind, I think of Fiddler on the Roof. How many of you have seen that movie? Yeah, I see you out there. You've, okay, remember the scene where the sisters are dancing and folding the laundry and they're singing matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, find me a find, catch me a catch. Well, in chapter 24, we see God as the matchmaker and he is going to find quite a catch for Isaac, that son of promise. So let's go on and um, look at chapter 24, verse one. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac." So the first thing we see in this chapter is that Abraham is very old. He is 140 at this time. It's been three years since Sarah's died. And the second thing we see is that God has blessed him in all things in every way. This is part of the covenant promise. God had said, I will bless you, Abraham. And here we read that God has kept his promise and has done exactly that. But now Abraham is focused on the promise of descendants, which means Isaac needs a wife. Now I have on your verse sheet uh, the promise of descendants, Luke, Genesis 22, or you can just look over uh, to chapter 22, verse 17. We read this last week. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. God has promised him descendants, and Abraham looks around and thinks, okay, well, for that to happen, Isaac needs a wife. So he calls his oldest chief servant, and everyone agrees that this would probably be Eleazar. We met him back in Genesis 15, verse 2. I also have that on your verse sheet. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar 
of Damascus. He had been with Abraham many, many years. He was trusted and he was trustworthy. It says he is in charge of all that Abraham had. And so Abraham says to him, get Isaac a wife. But he gives him strict guidelines about this wife and he also makes him swear to the Lord God by putting his hand under his thigh. Now this is kind of weird. Some of you have thought, what's that all about? But you know, we've often done that. Kids today kind of put their fingers together and say, pinky swear. You know, that's kind of weird. Uh, when I was young, we would say, cross my heart and hope to die. Well, this is the custom of the day. But this is not just a childish vow. This is a very serious vow. That's what that represents by putting his hand under his thigh. And he has guidelines. It must not be a Canaanite wife. First thing. Do not get a Canaanite wife. Instead, go back to Haran and get one of um, the wives from one of, the, um, of my relatives. Go back there to find a wife. So let's talk about that for a second. Why not a Canaanite wife? Um, there's a couple of thoughts here, and we're going to see this throughout the rest of Genesis and also into um, the rest of the Old Testament. Why not a Canaanite wife? Some people think that um, it's because the Canaanites were pagans. They worshipped Baal. They did not care about God. They were evil people kind of um, doing evil and corrupt practices. Uh, that thought that Abraham's family would have known God. Now, it's um, kind of questionable how much they uh, actually followed and worshiped God, but they would have not been as pagan as the Canaanites. So that's one reason. Another reason, which I like a whole lot, is the fact um, that there was a curse on Canaan. We read that back when we studied the first part of Genesis in chapter 9, and I have that verse on your verse sheet, chapter 9, 25, and tw Genesis 9, 25, and 26. And um, this is Noah speaking, and he says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So Canaan was... Um, the son of Ham, and there's lots of things about Canaan that we read in scripture, how he was corrupt and evil. We also know that Abraham, from chapter 11, is from the line of Shem. Abraham is from the line of blessing. So he knows that this is God's plan. Uh, Abraham is going to follow this plan to get a wife from the line of blessing. So let's see what Eleazar says, verse 5. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So we begin to see how special Abraham's servant Eleazar is. He's trusted by Abraham. He is thorough. He listens carefully, and he's focused on this task. 
He asked some questions for clarification because he wants to do exactly what Abraham says. He's an obedient, devoted, focused servant. And he's going to do exactly what Abraham tells him. And he swears to that. And Abraham tells Eleazar, okay, do not take my son back to the land of my kindred. Bring the wife here. And he also says, God is in charge. God is gonna direct you. God is going to guide you. So let's go on and see what, uh, how it continues in verse 10. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Um, and let's put the map up. We're gonna look and see uh, that. Uh, Northwest Mesopotamia, you might have your map there. You see they're coming from Beersheba, uh, Eleazar, that's where Abraham and them are, which is kind of in the central uh, part of your map there. And he goes up north. That would be about 400 plus miles to um, Nahor. And Nahor's around Haran. It's up there by Paddan Aram. That uh, is kind of at the top of the Euphrates River. So that's a long trip, and that's where he's going, and he takes 10 camels with him, and this would show Abraham's great wealth. Just to have a few camels would be a wealthy person. Abraham has more than 10, because he just takes 10. And it also says he takes some of his um, choice uh, gifts to take with him. So let's see what he does now that Eleazar has arrived in Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink. And I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Here we see Eleazar is a man of faith in his own rights. He knows God and he believes God and he asks God for guidance. And this is the first place in scripture that we see someone ask God for guidance. He's humble, he's reverent, and why is he asking for success? Because he wants God to show his steadfast love to Abraham because Eleazar believes in God's covenant promises to Abraham. He knows about God's faithfulness to Abraham and he's asking that God would do that today. He asks for guidance, he wants his spiritual eyes open to what God would have for him, and he wants others to see this steadfast love of God. Now the word here is hesed, and it's an important Hebrew word because it means loyal love, and it talks about uh, God's loyalty and faithfulness to his covenant promises. You see this word throughout the Old Testament, and some translations will say kindness or graciousness, but it has a much deeper meaning than that. It's God's loyal love for his people. And Eleazar knows this to be true of God because he knows God. So let's see how God answers this. Verse 15. 
Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. That's saying two times in two ways that she was a virgin. She went down to the spring and she filled her jar and came up. And then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Wow, so beautiful Rebecca does everything that Eleazar has asked God for. She gives Eleazar a drink, and then she says, let me water your camels, and she waters them. Now, this was quite a task. I read um, in one place that a thirsty camel can drink 25 gallons of water, and there are 10 camels, so you do the math. This was not uh, a quick task. This took her quite a while. It shows how hardworking and diligent and kind she is. And it says that Eleazar waits there patiently, silently looking at her, probably talking to God, is this the answer to my prayer? Is she the one? Lord, is this your choice of a wife for Isaac? And here comes the moment of truth in verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring wearing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms, and he says, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she she bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Now at this point, he would have probably put on these gold bracelets and rings on Rebecca. And then it says the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Eliezer is probably saying, yes, yes, she is the one. God has shown me his choice. And what's the first thing he does? He bows and prays in gratitude. He worships God. He praises God. He recognizes God's faithful, loyal, covenant love to Abraham. He connects the gift to the giver. Rebecca is the answer to his prayers, and he gives God the glory. He gives God the credit. What a great example Eleazar is, and what a great example his prayer is. It's simple, it's spontaneous, and it's natural, just like his relationship with God. He walks with God, um, and so it seems his prayer is almost effortless. It's so natural for Eleazar to pray first, to thank God, to praise him, to call out God's character to God. He is the loyal covenant God of Abraham. And I think he's such a great example for us to be, to be aware of God's presence and guidance in our lives. Sometimes we call it God's providence, God moving behind the scenes to bring his will to pass. Be aware, ladies, that all of life lies under God's plan and control. 
Be aware, notice it, think about it. Look for yourself in God's story as his plan. Remember to thank him, to give him the glory and the credit as you just walk through your day for the little things and for the big things and for those things that may not turn out so right. Look and see, what do you have for me here, God? How is this um, a good thing? For you, show me your will in this way. Lead me in the path that you want me to follow. Remember to thank him and to give him the glory. Let your prayer be spontaneous and natural. Rebecca runs home to tell what's happened. She um, brings her brother Laban out to meet Eleazar, and we read in verse 31. That he says, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and it says he unharnessed the camels, gave them straw and food and they washed their feet. And then in verse 33 it says, then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And so Laban says, speak on. You know, I love this. We see first things first for Eleazar. He's the ever-focused, obedient, devoted servant of Abraham. He's not thinking about food for himself. He's thinking about whether they're going to agree to let Rebekah come back to Canaan with him. This is his mission, and he's not going to eat until he sees what's going to happen here. And so speak on, he does. In verse uh, 34, he says, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master. And then in 36, he says, and Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master. This is the first time that they would have known this is the servant of Abraham. They remember Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and so he tells them what's happening. And then he goes on in these next verses from um, 36 to, I think, 48. He tells them everything that we've just read in chapter 24. He goes all over again, tells him his mission, tells him how God's led him here, tells him how Rebecca is God's choice for him, for Isaac. And whenever you see anything repeated in scripture, it confirms it. It's telling you that this is true and this is important. And this story of God providing a wife for Isaac, this is important. And how it happened is important. Eleazar emphasizes how God guided him on this journey time and again. He mentions God's name, and he says that Rebekah is God's choice. So then in uh, 40, uh, let's see, not 48, but 49, he says this. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. He's saying, hey, let me know what you decide so I know what to do next. And then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. So here we see um, Bethuel, her father, and Laban, her brother, saying, hey, this is of God. What can we say? Take her. I mean, even Laban is doing the right thing and following God. Remember this. We're going to see Laban uh, in uh, the next few weeks to come. Think about that. He is doing God's will and agreeing this is God's plan. And what does Eleazar do once again? 
he bows down before the Lord. He acknowledges this is from the Lord. And we see him worshiping and thanking and praising God. Eleazar is amazing. He acts with good sense. He's polite. He follows God faithfully and consistently. He's devoted to Abraham. And he's resolute, vigilant to complete his task for him. Eleazar gets how important this is because he believes God's covenant promises for Abraham. You know, Derek Kidner, he's a great theologian who studied the Old Testament and has written many commentaries on it. He says that Eleazar is one of the most attractive minor characters in the Bible, and I agree. Eleazar is a great example for us to be obedient and faithful, devoted servants to our heavenly master. You know, let's remember God is waiting to direct us and to bless us, and we want to seek him and worship him and praise him. God's our Lord and master and heavenly father, and he's also our friend, and he wants us to walk alongside him. So let's go on and see what happens next. 54 tells us that he and his men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. And when they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. And her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us for a while, at least 10 days, and then she may go. You know, so I love this, Eleazar, he doesn't want to waste any time. He's saying, hey, let's go, let's get on the road. And you can appreciate that her mom wants her to stay for a while, but he says, no, we need to get back. And so they say, well, call Rebecca and see what she says. And verse 58, and they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. I will go. Let's take a moment and look at Rebecca. She's quite an example for us as well. Like Sarah, she is attractive. In fact, she is very, very beautiful. But she also, and more importantly, has a beautiful character. She has great character. She's kind. She's hardworking. She is uh, diligent. She watered those 10 camels. She's hospitable. And the best quality, she is willing she is willing. She willingly accepts God's plan to be Isaac's wife. She's willing to leave immediately, not to delay or procrastinate. She is willing to go to Canaan and marry Isaac. We see Rebecca's faith in God as she accepts God's plan. So let's go on and finish up the um, ending to this romantic story. Verse 62 now, Isaac had returned from Beer Laharoi and was dwelling in the Negev, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah, this is so romantic, lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and she covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother. And he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is quite a romantic 
um, ending, Isaac's in a field, it's evening, he's meditating, he's praying to God, he's probably talking to God about this wife that he's expecting to come. Um, it's God, he's meditating on that provision. Proverbs 19:14 says this, house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Kind of a reminder for us ladies to pray for our children and grandchildren that their spouse would be from the Lord. So here we see him praying. Um, this is a glimpse of Isaac's faith and his relationship with God. It's in the evening, no one's around, and he's spending time with the Lord. And who is coming in the distance on camels? Eleazar and Rebecca. And it says Rebecca gets off and she covers herself with her uh, veil. And that is a sign of um, purity and humility and modesty. And it's also what a bride would look like on the day of her wedding. And we see Isaac's faith as he accepts Rebecca, God's choice for his wife. An application for us, when we spend time with God, it's easier to recognize and accept his plans. Isaac's been spending time with God and he recognizes God's plan and he accepts it in Rebecca. And we don't get many details here. I would love to know what she looked like on her wedding day, what she was wearing and the flowers and how long the celebration lasted. But we do get one important detail and it says Isaac loved her. He loved her. God, the matchmaker, had brought the perfect wife to Isaac. And the beautiful thing about this, he is the one patriarch that we see does not marry another woman. He does not um, have concubines. He's not sleeping with his wife's uh, maidservant. He, it's only Rebecca throughout this story. You know, it's easier to recognize and accept God's plans when we spend time with them. So how do we know God's plans for our lives? Well, we spend time with him through prayer, by talking to him, listening to him, um, being still before him, and we spend time with him by reading his word. This is his love story to us. The more that we read it, the more we know him, and the more we love him, and the more we trust him and follow him, and the more we recognize his plans for us. In closing, I just wanna read these last few verses on your verse sheet that give us some insight into the plans of God and knowing those plans of God. Job 42, two says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is Job talking to God. No plan of God's is going to be thwarted. Psalm 1, 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This is what we're not to do. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Law, these words, law, precepts, these are all talking about the scripture, the Bible. Psalm 119 tells us, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. When you know the word of God, we don't slip. Psalm 119, 104 says, through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. The more we know God's word and God's will and who he is, the more we recognize the wrong paths and we don't wanna take them. And one of my favorite verses, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then Joshua 1, 8, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. You love us. You want us to follow you, Father. 
you wanna guide us and direct us and bless us and prosper us. Thank you for this story where we see so clearly your faithfulness to Abraham and to his servant Eleazar and to Rebecca and Isaac and just this story of how they loved you and followed you and what a great story this is. Lord, I, bless, I pray for each woman in here that you would bless them, that you would draw them close to you. Lord, that we might follow you ever more closely. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.